There's this very rare condition. It's like an allergy where uh, you take a bite of dark chocolate. Like I take a bite and I sneeze. One sneeze, then I can eat the chocolate. Every time, the first bite is a sneeze. It's with cacao, dark chocolate. So I looked it up finally. And they said it's, it's a very rare thing. A friend of mine has the same thing. And it's just the first person I've ever met in my entire life with this same thing. That, that sounds like kismet to me. <laughs> Dark chocolate sneezes. Never heard of it. You know what? I want to see right now. And if there's any of you out there that have this sneezing from dark chocolate, here it comes. Why does chocolate make some people sneeze? Chocolate can make some people sneeze in the way that bright sunlight or mints or red wine or apparently unrelated triggers do. That's interesting because there is that that sunlight trigger. It's a trigger, but it's rare. Ah, interesting. Yeah. There are those who swear up and down that chocolate makes some people sneeze, yet they are not allergic to chocolate. So what's the scoop? Are these people imagining things, or can chocolate really make you sneeze? No, it's very real. Yeah, well it says yes. Photic sneeze reflex. Photic is for bright lights, the most common cause of this type of sneezing. One theory about this reflex involves overstimulation of the optic nerve, which can occur when you look at bright sunlight. And that is somehow uh, messes with the trigeminal nerve, which my mother actually is having a horrible problem with now, and I am not making that up. Mm. And the right side of her face is numb from her trigeminal nerve. Wow. Which is responsible for sneeze production. I wonder if my mom's sneezing more. Ask her. Should we call her right now? Yeah, I can't wait. It's my mom, dude. I gotta go. I gotta get going. You go ahead and you get going. That doesn't mean I'm not gonna pull this out. You're gonna call her? Yeah. What are you in your rotary phone? What is that? Is that a dial-up? No, it's my speaker. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's fucking gobshite, Mark. Who is this on the other line? I want to be a Russian guy. A little about that. Okay, yeah, you pick who you want to be. Here we go. Uh, 818. How long are you gonna be on the phone? Won't be an hour phone call? No. Marky, how are you, honey? Good. Just so you know, there's, there's somebody else in the room with me. Hello, Mrs. Ehrensberg? A what? Mrs. Ehrensberg, mother of Mark? Yeah? Hello, my name is Ivan, buddy. How are you? Hi, Ivan. How are you? Really good. Ivan and I know each other. He's a... He's a... He's a... <laughs> Excuse me? He's better than that, Mark. He's a street musician here in Ashland, and uh, I, I just met him. What does he play? I play a little bit of everything. Every instrument? A little bit, yeah. I focus on the Nyrtskia. Uh, on the what? The Nyrtskia. It's got, uh, it's got uh, two strings, yeah. Only two. Ah, okay. Pretty what? easy to play, actually. What? Body? Excuse me? I can barely hear you. I say, where are you from? Oh, I am from Kiev. I originally come from Ukraine, as you know, buddy. Oh, where Mark's great-grandparents are from. You did not tell me, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. It's amazing. Amazing. That's Beautiful. Why we have so much in common. Beautiful country. Anyway, Ivan here is an incredible, uh, sit- <laughs> Are you coughing? Is an incredible what? Excuse me? Are you higher than a kite? Excuse me? Yes, I am! You did not tell me, Mark! 
Why don't I talk to you later no. when you come down? Excuse me? No, I'm fine. I got to get back out to the corner to keep playing, okay? He's going back outside now to play his sitar. No, we're just having some fun, Mom. I love you. Love you too. Bye. No, I, I hear you fucking me. Oh, man. I don't know where that came from. What was great was she called me on being high. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome, dude. <laughs> I want my mom to hear that because I fuck with her with that voice. So, well, that's going to be on the next show. Okay. That's how the show's gonna open. Excuse me? I am Citizen 44. This show is sponsored by Paris Green, a curated collection of incredible objects from around the world. Paris is always a good idea. 77 Oak Street, Ashland, Oregon. Visit them online at Facebook. It's so delicious. You want to have more all the time. Oh. Here, this is so easy. Even I can do it. You put that there, and then you go like this. That is really fast. That is it. I am done. It is perfect. You cannot make any other way. I don't want you to have all the fun by yourself. Mm, this is really lovely of you. Want cookie? Should I wait till you make your drink? No. Yes. Have cookie now. Thank you so much. Mm. Charles Green, I love it here. Bonsoir. Check one, two. Check one, two. What's that picture you got in your hand? That's at the rainbow. We were with his dad that night, too. That night at the rainbow, Paul was telling everyone, this is my partner, Rich, because we were producing an album together. And then it dawned on me after a while, Paul, I think they all think we're gay. That night, the photographer said, let me get a picture of the two of you together. So he's the show. He's a beautiful man. He's a super cool cat. And, uh, and I got to meet him last year. You did. With his buddy. You did. Uh, James? James, who discovered a band called Keen. I don't know if you remember them. They were pretty big. Keen, like the shoes? Keen, like K-E-A-N-E. Keen. Were they good? They had some big hits. They were keen? They are cool. What They're was a hit? I don't remember. Okay. By the way, you're show number 34. Interesting you would say that. Why? Your 44 thing, your My synchronicity? Little... Yeah. I've had the number 34 since high school, since childhood. Really? Oh yeah. Me huh. and my best friend in high school, we, we still talk about it. 34. 
He sees it all the time. I see it all the time. We used to see it simultaneously all the time. Really? Oh, yeah. Paul's on the show. Paul. Paul Kilmister. We're great friends. And uh, his dad is Lemmy Kilmister, Lemmy Kilmister. A, a music icon. Yeah. I didn't even know Motorhead, i got to be honest with you. Icons. I grew up in the 70s, and I did not know that band. I swear to God, I didn't know. I didn't know. You could say they're the forefathers of speed metal. fortune to know Lemmy a little bit. And you played a little music with the guy, right? I did. I played on a track with Paul and Joan Jett and Lemmy for his uh, solo album that did not get released yet, yet, but it's supposed to come out. The song is called Monsters. drums on yeah, it. Yeah, it's a fucking great cut. So what are you up to, man? Man, I am uh, still working in the music business. I've been doing it a very long time, but I'm very blessed. But yeah, I'm focusing on my spiritual awakening at the moment. Working on your soul, working on yourself is the hardest work there is. And I can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Yeah, major domo. That's a real word, dude. Major domo. That's what it says. It doesn't say it's another language. This is an English dictionary. The chief steward of a large household. Major domo. Where the fuck did that come from? I don't know. Mazuma? That's not English. Sounds... Skeptic? That's English? Hmm. I've had an amazing week of opening of the heart. I saw you Sunday for breakfast and I wasn't in a good place. I was feeling depressed. I was down. This week has been great. I reconnected with the first person that gave me my first job in the music business, a man named David Pack. I'm telling you, I was a young, early 20-something kid, and and he really opened a lot of doors for me. He was the original singer of uh, the band Ambrosia, and they had a lot What's of that song? How much I feel. I'm gonna cry right now, dude. I'm fucking crying already. How inside. much I feel.
we, we, we had a falling out 17 years ago. We reconciled this morning. You know what? He gave me so much in the beginning. I've been holding this resentment and this grudge for 17 years. I reached out to him and he called me this morning and it was, it was great. How Maybe. much I feel. Yeah, man, David Pack and I did a lot of, a lot of stuff together. In 97, he was the uh, music director for the inaugural for Bill Clinton and I was there. So we did some great stuff together. I'm still doing some bookings. I have a wonderful band called the Young Dubliners. You know, Irish people, they talk a lot of shit. It's a ah. bunch of fucking gab shit. The most fun rock and roll show I've been to since, I don't know, really mm. couldn't even tell you. I told somebody that your dog and cat both have the same name. They do! And I told them that you let your mom watch the dog for a while and your mom didn't like the name, changed the name. I come over, your dog is despondent. Oh yeah. Despondent! It's fucked him up. I freed your fucking dog. You did. I did. Yeah. I wasn't even there an hour. He lost his identity. Why? Why are they both named Jake? I adopted Jake the cat in Los Angeles 10 years ago when I was doing some work for an animal shelter. When I moved to Ashland in 2013, my girlfriend at the time and I went to the Rogue Valley Animal Shelter and found this cute little dog in there. He had a little tag on that said Jake and I said, you've got to be shitting me. We adopted him right then and there. He is the best dog ever. Anything else? All right, look. All right. Uh, this has been a good one. Uh, a good what? Where's that joint? Pass the dutch up on the left. <laughs> <laughs> We're all just stardust. One, one, two, three. When I was young, I was the nicest guy I knew. I thought I was the chosen one. Time went by and I found out a thing or two. My shine wore off as time wore on. I thought that I was living out the perfect life. But in the lonely hours when the truth begins to bite, I thought about the time. When I turn my back and stall, I ain't no nice guy after all. Paul, we have some interesting connections, as you know. One is we have a mutual friend in uh, Rich Reese, which is how you and I connected. Yeah. Two, you showed up at Radio Star Studios uh, a few years ago. God, it's maybe several years ago now. When I was doing a project with uh, Sylvia Massey over in Weed at Radio Star Studios, you popped in with a very cute girl one day while we were recording. Yes, I recall. Yeah, and I remember your female friend at the time actually participated in the recording project by singing on the record. Ridiculous. Yes, she did. Yeah, she was super cute, and she had never heard the word 
poo-poo or caca before because she was from another country? Where was she from? Oh, uh, she's from Iran. She was from Iran, yeah. And uh, and we got her to sing the words poo-poo and caca on, uh, on the record, which was pretty funny to witness her doing that. And she did an awesome job. What was her name? Carissa. Yeah, she was super cool. Anyway, so we have some interesting connections, and you and I met, I think it was last year when you were here in Ashland, Oregon. You were visiting Rich? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I know that uh, you're a music guy, and you spawn from big-time music, as in your father, which I didn't know Motorhead growing up really very little, but I know that uh, your father, Lemmy, was... uh, legendary in the music industry, very well respected, uh, much loved, and he passed uh, in the past few years, isn't that correct? Yes, he did. Yeah, and I know that was a big loss for the industry, certainly, of course, uh, a big loss for you and uh, and your family. How did he pass? Well, he developed cancer from the prostate, um, and they didn't detect it. Um, they knew that he had some cells that were dormant, but unfortunately, uh, undetected, they must have spread, metastasized throughout his body, um, and went into his brain up his spinal cord. And so it was, it was very, uh, distressing to find out that it was actually quite advanced. Two days before he he was told about it. it Oh my goodness. It was so fast. So, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping he didn't suffer much. Well, you know, he, he, he was suffering, but he, was, he wasn't the kind of person to complain. He, he was very strong as a person. He liked to appear strong as well. He didn't want any sympathy. Uh, and, you know, he, he wasn't that kind of person. He had a lot of bravado as well. He was old school. He wanted to appear strong even if he wasn't strong. And he just wouldn't go down. So that's just the kind of person he was. Yeah. You know, it was difficult for him because he he was in pain a lot in the last few years of his life. You know, he had, he had medical issues and, and stuff, you know. Um, he was a diabetic and he was dealing with that. And, you know, then he had um, a defibrillator put in his chest for his heart in, you know, March of 2013. So there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, and he said to me one time, he said, um, you know, why is it that all the stuff that feels good is bad for you? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because <clears throat> he, you know, I mean, he liked to drink his Jack and Coke. He, he never drank it in huge amounts, but he would always be sipping at a, at a glass, you know, but he, so he, he meted it. Yeah. You know, he wasn't one of those people who drank, you know, 10 glasses a day. He, he meted it, but he, he did it over, you know, slowly throughout the day, a few, you know, um, but he did like it. And, you know, he, he also had other, you know, habits and things that he, that he, you know, is a rock and roller. He was, yeah. he was Lemmy and everyone knew what, what he did. He was, he was unashamed of any of it. You know, he, uh, he did what he wanted and he wanted to be 
remembered for being that way, you know, for for just standing, sticking to his guns. And he was, you know, quite stubborn when it came to, you know, that sort of thing where he was, you know, if anyone told him that he shouldn't be doing this or shouldn't be doing that, you know, he he would rail against that. He would he only did what he wanted to do. So he was, you know, he was quite sort of strong-headed, you know. Um, but a lot of those traits that he had attributed to his success massively, I think, because he, he just didn't listen to anyone, you know, unless he really believed they had something to say. Because his attitude was, you know, most people aren't fit to shine your shoes, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So he had very strong beliefs in him, in in self motivation and and having a good time. You know, he definitely had a good time. Yeah. You know. How old was he when he left? Four days into seventy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He was still a young man with you know lots in him. I'm sure, other than what he could. Yeah. Do you know, about. he he did burn the candle at both ends a little bit. Um, but none of us expected that it would be cancer or, you know, had any idea. And I mean, the doctors missed it, obviously, because um, he had been in and out of hospital for various, you know, treatment of various things uh, in the last sort of years of his life. But, you know, <clears throat> it was a complete shock when they told him. But they told him that, you know, he had two months at most on the 26th of December and then two days later he was gone I don't think he wanted to to hang out in, in a body that was failing him I think he checked out sounds you like know? he just shut it down yeah you know I don't, I can never know for sure and nobody will ever know for sure if, you know if he had some kind of control over when he exited but um, but he's you know as soon as he was told that you know it was a house on fire and that he, you know, had two months at most. I think that was, that was it. Well, based on what you're yeah. talking about in him, it sounds like he called the ball. I mean, he was running his own show anyway, so it sounds like he just ended the show the way he wanted to end the show. Yeah, he, he always did things the way he wanted to. And, you know, he was very uh, single-minded in that way. And, you know, it's very difficult to to argue an opinion with him if he didn't agree with it. You know, it was something I never got into with him either because you know, he was just so smart and intelligent that he could pretty much shut most people down, even if their opinion was a valid one. If he didn't agree with it, he he had very strong persuasion with his language. You know, he, he was, without even getting sort of mad or anything, he just had this ability to... So very politely tell you, you know, what he thought, <laughs> and it always sounded like he had the better judgment. It's just the way he was. Right. He was a complicated man, you know, but he, but he was also very intelligent. So yeah, yeah. So what was it like growing up? I mean, being his son uh, in the early days of your life. Where did you Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up with my mother. You know, um, he wasn't. He wasn't around. You know, he was too busy pursuing his music career. So I never really knew him very well when I was a kid. Though I didn't see him a, a, in a number of times. 
but there were fleeting visits and it, you know, it was only later on when I started to grow up and sort of, you know, after I left home and I began to see more of him and, you know, I had a, my own music career that I was trying to get off the ground and, you know, I would see my dad occasionally and, you know, it, it, he was just very busy the whole time and he put his music first, he put his career first. You know, and I can't be annoyed with that or bitter about that because being a musician myself, I can understand what drove him to be that way. You know, he, he, he definitely wasn't one of those people who would want to kick back and have a family or just be a normal person. I mean, that wasn't in his makeup at all. I mean, he would never have done that. So, you know, how could I expect him to be around for me when I was growing up? And I just had to accept that, you know, that's not the way, you know, he he he, he couldn't have done that. You right. know what I'm trying to say is he... That wasn't in his makeup. He couldn't have been that person. He was so driven to make a success out of what he was doing, and um, that pretty much eclipsed everything else. Right. But he never felt like he had to explain himself or anything. I think he felt that, uh, you know, because he put so much hard work into it that he was justified in, you know, committing some misdemeanors, like, you know, not being around... Right. As a dad or whatever, you know, I mean, but he was just, you know, he was selfish for professional reasons. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. And, um, you know. How much of him do you see in you, the way he was? Um, well, we're very different people in, in a lot of ways, but then we do have, I guess we share certain things. I don't really know because it's hard for me to comment on myself. I don't really... You know, it's difficult when you can't see the woods for the, for yeah, the yeah. trees. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I just try to be kind and, and good and supportive to the people that know me. I'm, I always try to be there for them. And I'm very, especially when a friend is in trouble, you know, or, or needs someone to talk to, you yeah. know, I always try to be there for them and support them, um, help them muddle through whatever it is they're trying to get through and I hope they do the same to me. Right. I, my dad was like that too. He was he was very much in that mold. But he, he was very selective about who he offered that side of himself to and you know on deep level because, you know, he, he he didn't he didn't have much time on his hands to to sort of be a a counsellor for people. <laughs> Somebody was in trouble, I mean he he would be there right there for them. A very caring man, but as I say, it was very complicated as well. So, you know, it wouldn't always be obvious, you know, when it came to matters of the heart. You know, it would, was not always very obvious that he was feeling a certain way about someone, but he would just suddenly reach out to them and and give them whatever they needed. Even if they needed some help with some money or they needed some help with other things, you know, like a, a pep talk. You know, he wasn't fluffy talker, you know, he would get right to the nitty-gritty that, you know, and tell them, you know, if he thought that they were making a mistake or whatever, I mean, he would gently remind them of their weakness in some way that would say, you know, that constructive criticism kind of a way. Yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I, and he was also very witty as well. So he had a very, very original sense of humor. He was a very funny man. So you'd always, you know, make some little twist at the end of a, of a talk, you know, but he would always like throw in some humor. He was, he was a funny guy. He was one of the funniest people I ever knew. He could have been a comedian if he wasn't a musician, you know. He wasn't doing it for the stage, though. He was just naturally that way. He didn't, you know, put on a, an outfit to go on stage in. He just, he was that person all the time, and that's what people loved about him. You know, yeah. He was just Lemmy. That, that was what you saw was what you'd got. You know, what you see is what you get. You right. Know? How'd your mom deal with all this? Well, you know, my mom has reconciled herself, I think, to the accepting, I think, who he was in the end, you know. Because when I was a kid, there was a lot of bitterness and anger surrounding the fact that he, you know, he was never around and, and, and that sort of thing. So she would get angry and she'd get upset and, and say things about him you know, that I, that, that I didn't personally agree with when I was a kid. So, but I never felt any sense of animosity towards him. He just sort of seemed like an enigma, like this person who, who was a mystery, yeah. you know, because I just didn't know him well enough. And I always hoped that I would be able to know him better. That, that was all it was for me. Yeah. It was never like a sense of, you know, oh, you know, He's done nothing for me. I shouldn't, you know. You know, you know. It was, it was. It's natural to feel drawn to a person who's, you know, your your father or your, your parent. You know, it's like no matter what has happened between the mother and the father, I think the the kid is always going to have that connection with with the parent, regardless of whether they they know them that well or not. Growing up, it's just natural, you know. So there was a lot of resistance from me uh, sort of accepting the idea or the notion from my mother that, that he was a person that, that I shouldn't acknowledge because, you know, he didn't do anything for us when we were growing up, which, which is true, you know, he didn't. But then again, if I didn't harbor those resentments, then how could I enact them? It's right. impossible, you know. Right. So but she had her own version of events, and I understand her position at the time as well. You know, she, I mean, she always loved him. She she loves him to this day. I mean, she, you know, it was only because she was hurt, I think, because she loved him that much. Right. Um, that she was, it was coming out in those ways, you know. But at the end of the day, it's like you have to get on with and make the best of what you got, yeah. <laughs> you know. So. Well, I'm sure you were both frustrated that you didn't have the connection that you wanted, which you had no control over, of course, but... Uh... I didn't share that feeling. I think I just felt maybe that's what it takes if, to be successful. They've got to be completely single-minded, you know, vision, you know, because that's what he was at that time. He was completely just blinkered, you know, following that race course to the end of the, the ticker tape, you know, that was who he was. Yeah. Do you have brothers and sisters? Well, I apparently have two half-brothers who are both adopted at birth to different mothers, so it's very difficult to find out who they are. My dad mentioned that there was one in 
in England, in Bradford, and another one, I think, in France. That's the furthest I got. I didn't find out any more information than that. Because he was looking for the phone number for the one in England, and he he was all excited about giving me the phone number, but then he sort of went, oh... And then he got to the end of the book and said, I thought I had it in here. Sorry, son. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, yes, I, I, I guess I do have siblings, but I, when they're adopted at birth, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to trace them. Yeah. How long were your parents married? Marriage in the 60s. <laughs> it was a three Ps, man. It was the pill, <laughs> penicillin, and promiscuity. <laughs> <laughs> My dad did not believe in, in wedded bliss the notion of marriage and family. You know, he, he was, uh, he, you know, he, uh, while I was being born, he was on the road with Jimi Hendrix. Right. You know, bring his drugs through him and, and, and humping his guitar amps. Around. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. What year did you show up in the world? Uh, 1967. And how deep into his career was he when you were born? He was in a band called the Rockin' Vickers. And... The Rockin' Vickers was like sort of a, they dressed like clergy, you know, with little white little collars, you know, and black wow. outfits, almost capes. Yeah. It's quite funny, they're sort of <clears throat> like, uh, you know, a bunch of priests on stage. Well, the Rockin' Vickers, you know, so. Yeah, um that's funny. And because my, my dad was kind of having a go at his own dad, my grandfather. Um, because my grandfather was a vicar and when my dad was born, my grandfather did a most dishonorable thing and he basically, <laughs> well, he just, you know, he just, he eloped with another woman, went off, left my grandmother literally holding the baby. And he was, you know, he was a vicar. So he, he was thrown out of the church and he, you know, he was sort of branded a black sheep, and I don't know what happened after that. I mean, I don't know much about it. All I know is that um, my dad was pretty resentful towards his own father. And, you know, he had a stepfather growing up, because my grandmother, you know, found a new, another man. So he never met his dad until he was 17. Um, and it didn't go very well. You know, it was in a pizza hut, I think, off Corton. Southwest London. And, uh, the first thing that my grandfather said to my dad when he when he saw him was, you know, after all that time, you know, you just think you'd have some humility or some, you know, some kind of maybe some an apology or something like that. Give my father, but he didn't. He just my my dad said to him, oh, you know, my amp is on the fritz again. You know, my guitar amp, and um, I need uh, some money to buy a new one. And he said, I'm not giving you any money for that kind of a for that kind of a career, uh, you know, you should get yourself a, a proper job like a train driver or something. And my dad just, you know, it's in this book, it's in his autobiography, yeah. but he got up and he he walked out of there and he said, you know, it was cleaner outside on the street and that was the Ells Court Road. But he basically got up and walked out of there. He said, it's a good thing that pizza didn't come in that moment, otherwise he would have been wearing it as a hat. Right, right. <laughs> So did he ever see his father again? Um, I don't believe he did. Yeah. I don't believe he did. He didn't want anything to do with him. Yeah. So, so you know, it's interesting that there was a resentment towards 
his own father and uh, sort of abandoning him when he was a baby. And then, you know, I, I grew up without without him. And so in my mind, I felt like, oh, this couldn't, this isn't a case of history repeating itself. And maybe it is, you know, it was like um, the same thing happening over again. But I didn't want to uh, go the same way and build up resentment towards him like he did for his father. So right. I decided to to end that right there and then and break the chain, you know, because yeah. I think it's unhealthy to to keep a loop like that going through generations. It's just, you know, it's just not cool, is it? You know, it's, no. it's just something that, well, why burden the family line with that kind of repeating karmic thing? You know, yeah. it's, just, it's not constructive. You know, that's what that's the way I viewed it. And I always loved him anyway, you know, and uh, so, so why, you know, try to convince yourself against your your gut feelings, you know, you, if you love someone, you're going to want to get to know them, you're going to want to be around them, you want to be share things with them. So, you know, I chose to go that way, despite him not being around for me, because, you know, it's like, well, how do you break that cycle? Well, you were yeah, unconditional, so. and your your grandfather was conditional with his love for his son, which was why your father abandoned that relationship. I mean, it, it held no value for him, and uh, maybe that's what drove him to work so hard and and be somewhat disconnected in that way. Yeah, because you, you know, my dad was basically like, "F you," you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you, and he did. Yeah, you know? that was a part of his personality. You know, that was a very big part of his personality. Um, I remember I went to visit my grandmother, who I hadn't met that many times, you know. I went to see her in 2001. And um, I'd just emigrated to Los Angeles, and I, I went back to England to sort out my visa. And while I was there, I went to see her, and she was this lovely lady, very, very proper English, very sort of old school, sort of... Uh, Oh, yes, dear, and just off to spend a penny, you know, uh, which is meant going to the toilet because, you know, they used to have these cubicles back in the 50s or the 40s where, you know, you'd actually put a penny in the little handle on the door to to go in, ah. you know, spend a penny. Yeah. So, you know, she was this lovely lady, you know, would you like some tea and biscuits, <laughs> some digestives? And so she was terribly, terribly British and, and such a sweet lady. And, um, you know, we, we had a very long conversation. It must have been, a, you know, four hours. And a lot of it was about my dad. And, you know, she said, oh, you know, he's a terrible correspondent. You know, um, <laughs> she was funny. She also, you know, divulged to me some things. She said that, she said, the sewing machine on the floor, dear. You know, there was this Singer sewing machine. And she said, if you open up the thread compartment, have a look inside, there's some money in there. And so I opened it up and, you know, there was about 11,000 pounds in a big wrap. Yeah. An elastic band around it. She said, take it. You can take it back to your father or you can keep it yourself. She said, I don't want to keep the money there because, you know, if uh, social services find it, you know, um, I could lose my my uh, monthly allowance and all this sort of thing. Yeah. And, I, and I said, really? She, she, she said, um, actually, she said, uh, the money was given to me by your 
grandfather before he died. And it was his wishes that he had this money be passed on to your dad. Mm. And so my grandmother passed the money to me, and I said, I'll take it to him. I said, I'll take the money with me. And it's funny because, you know, I think it was slightly over the amount that you can declare, you know, when you're going through an airport. But I just kind of shoved it in my shoes and stuff, and I got back to my dad's apartment in West Hollywood, and I took the money out, and I said, Dad, you know, this money is from your from your father. And he said, oh, I don't fucking want it. You keep it. Hmm. Of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Too little, too late. So, yeah, too little, too late. And even in death, you know, he still wasn't going to forgive him. Because his attitude was, you know, everybody romanticizes about people after they've died, you know. He said, you know, suddenly they become more special than they were or they're more sort of magical in some way or some sort of, you know, because of the uh, the affectionate sort of memories of someone or, you know, sort of romanticizing it. And he, he was just like, no, they're not. They're just, they're an asshole when they're alive and now they're just a dead asshole. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was that was his attitude. So, yeah. so it was like, you know, because he treated people in that way like they were still around, you know, so, so like the, he remembered how his dad was and so he wasn't going to forgive him even in that situation and I understand that I understand who he was that's what made him Lemmy you know he was authentic and he wasn't going to not be who he was for anybody it sounds like yeah why did he need that money anyway it was he had plenty of money he didn't need that money anyhow but even if he was broke I don't think he would have accepted no he had his belief system you know he had his morals and he had his reasons. And so it must have been painful for him. So, you know, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't like roll over and, and cry about it. The, the way he dealt with it was just to get up and march forward. You know, that was how he dealt with, with things. Did you have any that kind of relationship bad. with your grandfather? Never met him. Okay. Never met him. Where did you grow up exactly? I grew up in London, in South, mainly Southwest London. At the age of seven, my mum got a place, and she's still in the same place now, near the King's Road in London. It's uh, She's in the same place yeah, as, as when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, she hasn't moved. Wow, that's really pretty amazing. Most people don't stay any place that long. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I mean. How's she doing? She's doing great. Oh, good. She's, you know, she sings, you know, she's, she's a blues singer. Oh, and that's what she was doing in the 60s with my godmother, Lynn Maitland. So, you know, I think they had a, a, a band called Blonde on Blonde or something like that. Ah, so they were singer-songwriters, um, both of them? Yeah, I mean, I think they, the whole band, I think, wrote the song, including them. I don't, I don't know much about it. I think they did a lot of blues stuff. Yeah. Uh, so my mom was, then she was in a band called Mahogany. She was in a band called Ace for a moment where they had that big hit, um, How Long Has This Been Going On? Ah, wow. She did the rounds, you know, and... So she was no stranger to the business. She grew up in Liverpool, and she grew up with the Beatles, so she knew she knew them really well before they made it. Mm. And um, and it's pretty amazing, her story, actually. She's got a pretty incredible story. I mean, she, she grew up in the best era of music, I think, that period, the 60s and 
And, you know, the, the 70s was also an amazing period for music as well. You know, my, my dad just slogged away so hard at it that he, he made himself noticed just through the sheer grueling tours that he did, you know. He made it, whether you liked it or not, you knew who Motorhead were because they were just everywhere, you know what I mean? And it was also his determination to to sort of show the uh, members of his previous band that he was in Hawkwind, you know, he he got fired from the group and I think that hurt him. And so he came out of that band and formed Motorhead and then he was just, it was just grim determination. It was just like, you know, you know, no one's going to keep me down kind of an attitude. I was, you know, so he was in, incredibly driven. How yeah. old was he when he started Motorhead? Um, 30. Well, you know, he told me that he'd done bugger all until, you know, he was 30. Right. And just so he didn't see the years before Motorhead as being anything really that significant. But it actually was, you know. I mean, he he had a lot of experience under his belt by the time he was 30. I mean, being a roadie for Jimi Hendrix, you know, um, he was with Hawkwind. He was a face that everyone knew right. in town. The Rockin' Vickers was before I was born. I mean, that was the mid-60s, you know. So really, I think that was his first real band. And they did really well. You know, that, that band did extremely well. I mean, they were all driving around in Jags. They did all the working men's clubs in the north of England. A lot of, you know... That kind of round, but they were very successful at that level, and um, they were able to, you know, have a pretty cushy lifestyle. Considering, you know, that there was just a, a local sort of gigging band going around. But you know, it was—I mean, it was mainly just touring in England. I'm not sure if Hawkwind even toured America that yeah. much. I think maybe they did a one or two tours at the time. But, but you know, Motorhead became. An international phenomenon, you know. They they toured all over the world regularly. Yeah. You know, every year they did a whole tour, you know. And they even managed to play Russia at one time, which was a very interesting experience because no band hardly ever went out that far, but yeah. they decided to do it. Apparently, the plane was so rickety, you know, it was like one of those Air Force planes, you know, that's sort of like a, a hangar inside, you know, it was like no seats and nothing. Oh right, to yeah. In, you know. I mean, that's the kind of touring that Motorhead did. You wow. know, they were hardcore. I mean, you know, the plane had all the gear in the back, and, and so the nose was pointing up in the sky because the back of the plane was so heavy with all the equipment. And the pilot was drinking a bottle of vodka, and the plane was going, you know, like going, doing like, you know, seesaw in the air. They didn't have to parachute out, did they? They actually landed the plane? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was freezing cold as well because, you know, it's Russia, you know. Yeah. And when they landed, they landed on a on an airstrip that they couldn't see because there was so much snow on it and ice. And they got out the plane and sort of the tires were bald. And, you know, and they were giving backhanders to the Russian military, you know. They were just... <laughs> because there was no airline that, you know, flew to those places. Like, right. No commercial airlines crazy stuff like that that they did you know like what band does that you know motorhead does evidently <laughs> yeah <laughs> to reach you know the fans in far-flung corners of the world he cared about his fans and yeah. he cared about them so much about getting to everyone possible that he he did they did crazy stuff you know i mean most bands would just wince at the idea of doing something they'd never do something like that you right know, flying over siberia in the middle of winter 
He obviously loved what he did and loved that he had people that loved what he did. Yeah, 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 obviously. I mean, to put yourself at risk like that, it, you know, to get to play to people is, is something you don't see very often. <laughs> no, that's super special. And you know what? You don't see that often, and that's why he was who he was. That's why he was so well-respected and loved. Is Like you said, he did it hardcore, and, and you don't find a lot of people that dedicated to what it is that they love so much. Yeah, yeah, and he stopped at nothing. So, you know, what do you do when you go to bed like that? He's, it's like, well, you know, he started early, <laughs> you know, with the touring. You know, the touring was was what he did. I mean, he wasn't even that bothered about the records, so they did make, you know, 20-plus albums. I mean, but he just didn't really register with that because he, he always thought all record companies were, you know, just out to monopolize the bands, you right. know, and stuff with, them, with the money and stuff. And so he, the only thing that felt real to him about the industry being the way it was and the way, you know, well, now it's just, I don't know what it is now. It's a completely right. different animal now. But yeah. but then, you know, he, he saw the way forward as just incessant touring because the only thing about it that was real for him was the fans. Right. You know, the people that came to see him. Those are the people that buttered his bread. Right. And he knew it. Yeah. You know? How many shows a year do you think he did on average? Well, that's a hard question. You know, I'd have to count them. I mean, they played on average, you know, a show every two nights. Sometimes every night, but in the frequency of the shows when they're at their peak was, you know, when they toured, they toured hard. Over 300 shows a year. Oh, yeah, easy. I mean, they didn't play shows. You know, they'd take the break, and usually it was around April, May. That was always the same period of time. It sort of fell into a pattern eventually, and, you know, he would go and go back to West Hollywood, sit in his condo and write an album, you know, write the lyrics, and then take it to the band and they would hash it out and the band would supply some of the musical ideas that my dad always, you know, wrote the lyrics. He was a very strong force as a lyricist, you know, that was really where he had his talents, really. He was a fantastic lyricist. So, you know, that's what they would do. They would they would get together and, and record an album, you know, after two weeks of writing lyrics at home and, you know, coming up with basic sketches for songs and and that was that's how they offered it. it was very straightforward how they did it you know it was um uncomplicated it wasn't like heavily produced the records would go in that they played all live and you know maybe the, the vocals would be done separately but really it was a very fast process there was no uh fluffing about with fancy production or editing or anything right. like that. It was just, right. you, you know, they did it and they recorded it and they mixed it and put it out and then they went out and did another tour, promote it. Yeah. And it was the same pattern every year. So, you know, incessant. I can't imagine working that hard, to be honest with you. I mean, it sounds like two months of working just to create material and then the rest of the year out there pimping the material the whole time. Well, you know, it's, it's like that saying, when the sun is shining, make hay. And, yeah. You know, once the sun came out for him and he became successful, there was no way he was going to let anything slide. Yeah. You know, he did his damnedest to, to keep himself at a, an even keel, the machine rolling. And so I think that um, that was what came first, because that's the only thing that gave him salvation, the only thing that gave him something to, to live for. Because he said to me many, many times, you know, he said, what am I going to do if, if I stop doing this? He said, because there's nothing 
else that I'm qualified for. Yeah, and he was very self-reliant, too, because he couldn't rely on his father, and he had to become his own pillar of strength, obviously, and uh, and take care of his own business. That's exactly what it was, yeah. yeah. That's exactly what it was, and, um, and it doesn't matter... You know, who represented him in business or whatever, you know. He was the one that was making it all work yeah. for everyone else because he was the prime mover, you know. He was the center of gravity of the whole thing, so... Yeah. What have you taken from all that for your own life and your own career? Well, just to carry on going, you know, to just to not listen to people when they tell you that, you know, oh, you know, it's no good. Because, I mean, they were told there was a, there were a bunch of reviews, you know, when Motorhead first started playing gigs that, you know, they were the worst band in the world and, you know, real slap in the face wow. type stuff, you know, yeah. real, like, you know, negative reviews and things. And he just put his finger up at them and he just carried on going. Yeah. And, you know, and you keep doing something and you keep doing something and people begin to realize, actually, he's pretty serious, this guy. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and he's really good at what he does, too. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's, that's how he played it. And for me, I mean, I'm doing what I want to do, which is, I like to make records. I like to be involved in production, and I and I love being a musician. But I've always been in the studio. I've always been interested in the production side of music and ideas and being creative in that world. You know, and it's something that I think my dad would have preferred that I would have been touring and out on the road and being a, a live musician more. But you know, I've done that too, but not to the obviously not to the extent that my dad did, and I. You know, that it's something that I understand. But, you know, I just love being in, in the creative process with other artists. That's where I come to life, I think, is just being a sort of sounding board musically and, and creatively for with other people who are talented, you know, with other people who have what I feel uh, have something really great and original to offer. And so that's what I love to do. Well, I just listened you know, to Phoenix O'Neill, and I really liked Cruel World. Oh, yes, uh, Phoenix O'Neill. Yes, she's fantastic. She's a very unusual artist because, you know, she she has this way of writing songs that are very deeply personal, but she isn't afraid to reveal those feelings in her songs. That's what I got. At all. She takes you into her world. And I think an artist that is brave enough to do that definitely deserves to be noticed. I mean, she's She's also got an incredible voice. You know, she she can do it live. That's all I can say about yeah, it. Yeah. If someone can do it live, then they're a real artist. That's right. You know. Yeah. And that's what it boils down to, doesn't it? So Yeah. So I I worked on Phoenix's uh, four songs of hers last year with my music partner James Sanger who who's made some great records. I mean, he's been involved in some some big artists and big art, you know, he's worked with Dido and He's worked with Pet Shop Boys and Phil Collins. And we got together again after many years of him being in France, because you know, he lives in northern France. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been in Los Angeles for the past 15 years. And I've moved out to the desert in California after my father passed away. And we got together after all those years and started collaborating again on a couple of artists. And Phoenix was, you know, the second artist we worked with. And because, you know, James played me some of the artists that he had been doing some demos and doing some recordings with. And when I heard Phoenix, she just jumped out at me like that voice. That's a great talent. Like, we've got to work with her. So we did. And they flew over, you know, from London. And we rented a house in nearby Joshua Tree to where I was. And we 
when we got down to it, we, we spent a, a month just recording a whole bunch of songs. And then we just picked four for an EP. Thought, well, you know, we, we're going to start in that place. We'll start with an EP and try to get that launched. You know, so that's, uh, that's really how that whole process began. I was working with really talented artists, you know, that, that really have something, you know, something that drives them, you know, and, and you can't say it's because of money, because a lot of artists do it because there's fringe benefits. You right. know? They'll, they'll pursue it for the fringe benefits rather than for the art itself. And I think anyone who does that, they're playing the wrong game. I think, you know, it's sure it's, you know, many artists are successful because they're more driven by what they can get out of it, I think, on a material level or whatever, or going out with a beautiful woman or a beautiful girl. Oh, yeah, you know, there's, there's all these different reasons. Yeah, yeah. And none of them are valid, I think. You know, the only real valid reason is that you want to be, you want to share with the world, you know, your, your art. I think that's really the main reason for doing it. The reward isn't being able to express yourself and have other people yeah, yeah. share and that and experience you with that you. And, yeah. and to say your expression to people and people love it and they love your music, then everything else just clicks into place. I sure. think the success comes, the money sure. comes, all that stuff comes anyway. But, yeah. but if you're not doing it for the right reasons, I think it kind of shows, you know, I can spot it, I think, you know, I'm usually quite good at spotting it. But it's, and I don't really listen to the radio I don't really listen to what's going on. I couldn't tell you what was in the charts right now. All I know is that if I meet someone who's got real talent and I'm interested in working with them and, and I see they're the kind of person I can work with, that it's going to you know, be mutually beneficial. It's going to connect or join up. And then it's very exciting when you find someone like that right. to work with. The greatest line I ever heard was, if you love what you do, people will love what you do. I mean, that's pretty much... I think that sums up your father a lot is he loved what he did. And so people loved him because he loved what he did. And, yeah. and it's, it's kind of an automatic thing that that passion for whatever you do, you're definitely going to find people that feel that same way about you and what you do. Well, you know, at the end of the day, I think you've got to make music that you like, you know, right. and if you don't like your own music, then what are you doing? I've heard of lots of situations like that, you know, where, there was a couple of producers in, in London in the 90s that worked on a lot of big records, put a lot of stuff out there. And it was like a nine-to-five job to them. They they hated most of what they did. And they just turned up and in the studio and just sat there. And it was just all, you know, like piecing things together in the computer or whatever, or, you know, like they didn't like their job. I mean, what's the point in doing that? I mean, it's just, it just, just seems like a waste of time. But, you know... Money talks, and, yeah. and if you get into that cycle, you know, you're just doing it to pay the bills, and it's yeah. just, you might as well get a job as a plumber, you know? <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, I'd rather be broke and doing what I'm passionate about than rich and miserable. I mean, the money can only go so far anyway. It doesn't it doesn't really do much for yeah, you money internally. Yeah, it's about. It's, yeah. You know, you could be much happier if you've got, like, you know... Uh, 150 bucks in the bank, you could be a lot happier than someone who's got, you know, 2 million in the bank. I mean, it's just not about money. It's uh, people have this misconception that it is, you know, yeah. that it's just, that's what it's about. But it isn't. It's, it's about something a lot more tangible and real, I think, than, than that, you know. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. You know, once you get a taste of some money, 
they'll forego what's in their heart for what's in their head. Yeah, I mean, it's it's jumping through hoops that you don't want to jump through, but you're jumping through them. People do that all the time, and I never elected to to do that. I just always wanted to, to do what I wanted to do on my own terms. And I think that maybe that's something that me and my dad share, you know, in very different ways, of course. But the fact that you have to follow your dreams. You really should, you know. I think anybody should. They should follow what what's going on in their gut, you know, follow their gut instincts. I mean, there were times when I didn't follow my gut instincts, and it always ended up being the wrong move. Swear to God. Yeah, of course. Every time. Well, your your heart doesn't lie. Your body doesn't lie to you. It always tells you the truth. I mean, your brain will lie yeah. to you, but your heart doesn't lie. It absolutely doesn't even know how. Your brain will persuade you. Yes. <laughs> no, no, it'll create stories. You know, it's totally full of shit, your brain, and it's and that's your ego running. But your heart, it does not know how to lie. It will always present the truth to you. And then it's up to you to let your brain either take the lead or let your heart take the lead. That's exactly right. How was it for you growing up? Were you immediately musically inclined or were you like a normal kid, you know, going through school, becoming a teenager? How was it just like hanging with uh, you and your mom? Well, first of all, you know, we, we didn't have two pennies to rub together. I mean, my mom was quite broke and, you know, we bounced around different places. And by the time I was seven, you know, she got that place that so she found... um money on on the sidewalk well actually i wasn't there she was by herself she, it was just before christmas and she found 15 pounds like a 10 pound bill and a five pound bill like in the gutter literally somebody dropped money so she picked it up and she went to a guitar shop nearby and she bought this watkins rapier like a red guitar uh, and it was an electric guitar, and I'd never had an electric guitar before because all she had was this old Italian echo acoustic 12-string, which had six strings on it because my dad uh, had told her, you know, the echo guitars are really sound good, but the 12-strings are cheap to buy, but if you put six strings on them, they actually sound really good. Uh-huh. So that's what my mom had. And I used to play that thing, and it, it was so big when I was like six years old. I started playing when I was about five, I think, and you know, by the time I was six, so it was really impossible to really sort of even get to look over the top of that guitar. I mean, you're that small, you know. Right. <laughs> it's like these arms reaching around, trying to reach the strings to strum on them. So it's this huge guitar for a six-year-old. And, and then when my mom got the Watkins, that was a, a, a great thing, you know, because this was a guitar that was small enough for me to handle. And it was electric, you know, but I didn't have an amp for it. So... And that was one of the gifts that my dad gave me when I was a kid is he came over at Christmas and he and he he'd been in the States and he'd brought back a pig nose, mm. little tiny pig nose amp from I think it was somewhere like Tennessee, you know. It had a Cowtown ballroom sticker on the back, I always remember. And so he gave me that for Christmas, I think nineteen seventy four. And so now I had an amp, so he definitely kicked me off with my first amp. And that little tiny handheld amp that, you know, runs on six AA batteries. And so by the time I was nine, I was busking on the street. I was playing on, on the street, you know, for money. And that's how we made enough money to eat and uh-huh. stuff, often, you know. So I would, I, I would play a Rolling Stones songs, Honky Tonk Woman, and, you know, saw her standing there, and all these old songs. I got noticed by 
the Alex Harvey band, the whole actually, the sense, sensational Alex Harvey band. It was Alex Harvey first song. It took me to Ireland, uh, Ireland Records recording studio, which was Basing Street Studios. And I got to see my first recording session and I immediately became fascinated with the recording studio because it was like Starship Enterprise, all these flashing lights and buttons. Yeah. And, you know, fascinating. So, you know, that was what got me started in, in that side of it. And, you know, but I, I was a performer and I wrote my own songs. By the time I was 10, I'd written a bunch of my own songs. And then I got a, I was actually the youngest person in England to get a publishing deal. I was age 10 and I got signed to Ireland Publishing and uh, by Billy Lowry, Bill Kimber. And I, you know, went from there and I had sort of brushes with success. I, I ended up meeting Paul Rogers from Bad Companies, singing Bad Company and Free. And I met him and he gave me a Fender Stratocaster when I was 10 years old. Because he knew I was going on TV to a you know, Saturday morning TV show. And he said, what guitar are you going to play? And I said, my Red Watkins. You know, and he said, you can't go on TV playing a guitar like that. You need a proper guitar. <laughs> and he pulled it out from under the broom cupboard. You know, he pulled out this 1962 Fender Stratocaster with a rosewood neck. And um, and it was played on the second company album on a song called Shooting Star. The album was called Straight Shooter. And, uh, you know, so Mick Ralphs played the guitar solo on Shooting Star. And it was like a great thing to have for a 10-year-old ten, a being given a, a Fender Strat, you know, by Paul Rogers. This, Unbelievable, you know. I had a connection with him, and it was amazing to to have that experience. And I think, I think Paul Rogers played the video. He had he recorded it on VHS with me on the show on the on the TV, and he um I think he played it to John Bonham from Led Zeppelin. And then I, you know, I remember my mum used to lead me around at the Swan Song building was Swan, Swan Song Records, Swan Song Publishing, which is where Led Zeppelin Bad Company's manager Peter Grant had his offices. So my mum would leave me there with her friend who was the secretary there. And um, <clears throat> one day Robert Farm walked in with John Bonham, you know, and it was, you know, Bonzo. And I didn't really know Led Le Zeppelin at that point. I was still listening to Johnny Winter and Free and, you know, Cam Heat and those kinds of well, That was around 1977? Yeah, it was uh, 78, this was. Okay. And, you know, and then Robert, I knew I knew Robert Plant was because, you, you know, that golden name. And he walked in and he was like, hey, gang, you know, and then there was this guy standing next to him who was in a trilby hat. And I think he had Wellington boots, not Wellington boots, but he looked like he'd come off a farm, you know. And I didn't know who he was. And he came up to me and he said, oh, you're the kid that plays plays guitar and sings, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, I'd love you to meet my son, Jason. He said, uh, you know, you should have a jam sometime. Come up to our house, maybe. And it never happened when he was alive. And then, you know, in about around about... April of 1982, phone rings my mum's place, and you know, pick up the phone, and it's Peter Grant. And he's, uh, you know, I don't know if you know who I am. My name's Peter Grant, and I manage that company, Led Zeppelin and Maggie Bell. And uh, I just wanted you to know that it was John's dying wish that you play with his son Jason. I'm standing on the other end of the phone, like, going, what? You wow. know, it was the most surreal thing. And uh, so I, they said, well, you know, because you're underage and you're, you know, you're a, you're a minor, I'm going to have to get approval from, from your mother. So can we talk to her? <laughs> so I handed the phone to my mom and then she said, um, okay. Car picks me up, you know, and takes me to Jason's house. And I shacked up there with Warren Grant and Jason. Warren was Peter's son. Warren was 17. I was 
14 and Jason was, I think, 15, I was suddenly in that world of pretty amazing experience. And, you know, we had a lot of fun for three months, and but nothing really came of it because my mum pulled me out of it after a few months. And, you know, that was that. It was just because maybe she thought I was too young or for whatever reasons, you know. You know, I was in and out of schools, and then when I got to the age of 12, I started having private tutors come and teach me at home. I had an economics teacher, and I had a, a algebra teacher who was from Sri Lanka. So I, I had, you know, a lot of stuff going on. And then I was in a college that was for people of age 17 to 20. I mean, it was huh. I was in a college of much older kids. And maybe not that, maybe, you know, as low as 16. But I was, you know, I was 13 years old. I went to this college, and... You know, and then the Inner London Education Authority, which was the ILEA for short at the time, you know, which was the governing body, you know, the government-funded education system, found out that I wasn't at a a normal school for kids of my age. And they they pulled me out of the college and they put me in this really rough school, you know, where I got the crap beaten out of me. And, you know, I had long hair and I refused to wear a uniform. and And I was in, you know, like a denim jacket and denim outfit and sort of cowboy boots, you know, and I, re- wow. I refused to wear the stupid school blazers and the cap and the fucking Boy Scouts outfit, you know, I wasn't going to walk around like that. Well, I didn't get thrown out of that school. I actually got beaten up so much that um got to a point where I was traumatized and I had uh, palpitations. So, you know, I came home one day after being attacked in a, in a classroom that just started, you know, just like an angry mob, you know, that just, the te- even the teacher was so terrified, he ran out of the classroom and locked me in there with the kids, which was <laughs> great, you know. Very responsible, so, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, and he came back with, you know, reinforcements, but it was, it was, you know, he left me in there for five minutes. I mean, they, they were cutting my hair off, they pinned me down on the floor. And, Jesus. You know, they were trying to blow, like, pieces of the rubber in my eye through, you know, empty pen shafts, you know, like the, those big pens, you know. Those yeah. Pens. It was, it was it was just a full-on assault, you know, attack. And um, so after I went home that day, I was traumatized and I was, you know, in tears, obviously. And and then my mom took me to the doctor and she got a doctor's note. And she said, you know, he, he can't go back to this school. And so I went back to the college, which was much, much better, you know, because it was civilized people. It wasn't an animal house, you know. Yeah. It was like, oh, you know, actual people that I could actually have a conversation with, too. And they were all older than me. So always, I was always around older people than myself. I couldn't identify with any of this crap, you know, that <laughs> I'd grown up around musicians. I'd grown up around creative people and, and, and had, you know, deep conversations. You know, I was into that. You know, I've always just been the same person, really, I think. You know, even then, I wasn't into sports and I wasn't into being a kid in that way. And, you know, also the, the struggle when I was young with my mum, you know, seeing how hard of a time she was having and because I was there with her, you know, so that makes you become somewhat responsible pretty quick. I have to think on my feet, you know. Yeah. So I, I left that college because things started to happen with my music career. Yeah. I now released in Japan when I was 14 of songs I recorded when I was 12. And I had a great backing band on, on that album. It was like, you know, two members of Rod Stewart's band, and, uh, uh, Philip Chen and Kevin Savigar, and uh, who Philip also played on a, a great Jeff Beck album. So Jeff Beck's like my other favorite guitarist, mm. apart from Hendrix. I actually ended up being able to work on a Jeff Beck album as well later, so I got to meet him, which was fantastic. He's just 
an incredible musician. But I digress. So I did this album and, you know, so still a cello on bass, Kevin Savagar on drums, Kevin Savagar on piano, <laughs> John Lingwood on, on drums and uh, John Goodsall on guitar. And John Lingwood played drums with Manfred Mann's Earth Band. John Goodsall played guitar with a band called Brand X that had Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel in it. So it's kind of like a super group that, yeah. that were backing me for this whole day. You know, we, we, we cut five songs in one day in the studio live. And, um, you know, it was, it, it, Billy Gaff, I think, was funding it, who was Rod Stewart's manager. Managed Rod, Rod Stewart and John Cougar Mellencamp. And so, you know, I think there might have been some connection to Geffen. But the problem was I had this manager that my mother had signed a contract with. And I think when Billy Gaff approached, you know, me to want to manage me, and I think, you know, the other managers waved this piece of paper at him and said, oh, you know, I've already signed a contract with the kid. You're going to have to manage him with me, you know, and, and I don't think Billy Gaff was into that. It was like, no, no, no I want 100% of this, you know, yeah. or nothing. So, so it didn't happen. Mm. But he did bankroll the, the recording sessions, I believe. And that ended up being released in Japan. It did fairly well, I hear. I never went there because to go and tour, there was no band. It was just me, you know, yeah. I would have been turning up by myself, you right. know, asking around, you know, have you got any musicians I can do a gig with, you know? Didn't your manager see that you had a viable product and want to support you? Yeah, but he he, he didn't want to invest any money. I mean, I heard stories about him. and I, he, he shall remain nameless, but he wasn't interested in funding it properly, you know, for whatever reason. He he just wanted to sort of cash in on on whatever he could, really. And I think that's what happened is the album was released in Japan and whatever money that came from that album, I think it, well, I didn't see any of it. My mum didn't see any of it. Huh. So that's what people do, man. So uh, nothing really came of that for me, apart from me you know, getting a bunch of fan letters from young Japanese schoolgirls, which I loved. <laughs> <laughs> and then the thing happens with Peter Grant, you know, and then I was with them for a few months. So I had lots of skirmishes with success. You know, I had lots of experiences that just lay, lay down the sort of the groundwork for me. You know, it was like the groundwork. And, and then it got to a point where I actually had left home and then I was, you know, out in the big wide world, so to speak, and spent a lot of years just working with various musicians and bands and things and getting more into production. But I you know, I never had much money, so I never had the capital to build a recording studio or to because that was my dream. I always wanted a recording studio. So I so I slowly assembled gear out of all the work I did over the years as a musician and you know, I, I put together enough equipment by the time, you know, I got to the end of the 90s. And it was a slow process of just building things up and building things up and um, and just sticking to it. And, and then, you know, I, I came over to the States and I had more success in Los Angeles in the 2000s than than I ever did in England because the, the, the vibe was just more, I don't know, it was that people were more welcoming, people were more sort of uh, encouraging, you know. Yeah. It's just almost like I think England has this thing or London has this thing of, it's a little bit of a cynical sort of environment, I think, in a lot of ways uh, in the music industry there. And I found it to be very different, you know, in California. I don't know, maybe it's because the sun shines there. I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that what happened with the British invasion is everybody was bailing out of there to come to the States? and Yeah, and, and, it, and it wasn't just, just the thing of coming to the States. It was just that it, I think, you know, it's, it's that thing if you work hard, you're rewarded for your efforts in the States. 
more so than you are in England. In England, you can work your balls off. And, um, you know, people are just going to take advantage of you in general. It's a little bit of a cynical thing. And, and you know, you're not encouraged as much. You're just kind of, you know, everyone's just looking to exploit people, really. But, but they don't give you that love, you know, that um, I got a lot more love from working with people in, in Los Angeles. You know, I got a lot more encouragement and support as well in a positive way, yeah. you know. That suited me better than where I was, you know, because though I did work with some great people in England, they're not discounting all of it, you know, there were some, some people that really were there for me, and, and I won't forget those people, you know. I mean, Chris Difford was one of them, you know, he's, he's a great songwriter in a band called Squeeze. They had that big hit, Tempted, and Tempted by the Fruit of Another I song. saw Squeeze then, at the Universal Amphitheater. And it was one of my favorite shows of all time. I thought they were a super talented band. I really enjoyed their music. Yeah, yeah, yeah fantastic. And, you know, I think, you know, Glenn Tilbrook and, and Chris Difford are really the, a, 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 an underrated pair of songwriters. I mean, worked with Chris for a couple of years at the end of the 90s. And, and that was one of the, my better experiences of mm. working in England. You know, he was a lovely guy and a real friend. And, you know... You can count those on one hand in this industry. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think it's gotten better in England, though, now? Well, I don't really know what's going on in England right now, because I'm not there, and I haven't been keeping abreast of things. It just seems to be a bit choked over there, you know. All the great venues that you used to hang out in are all shut down. You know? I mean, uh, a lot of the places where people used to go are just to watch a good band play, you know, like the Embassy Club or the... The Mean Fiddler, I think, is still open. It's still there in Halston. I mean, there's lots of little cool places that you could go and watch bands. Well, maybe the Mean Fiddler isn't open anymore. I don't know. But all of these clubs all over London, I'd say about 70% of them are gone. Hmm. Who knows? You know, it's probably worse now. You know, and now you've got, you know, all these uh, sort of coffee shops and internet cafes and things. Well, that's what they got replaced with, you know, yeah. sort of the new generation. And, and, and that's, that's fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just different, isn't it? But it's not the world that I grew up in. It's a different one. And as far as, you know, getting down and dirty and going to watch a, you know, go, go to one club and watch a band and, and then bounce to another band. And it was a great time. There was a period when England was really a cool place. You know, I mean, London was a really cool place. And there was plenty to go and see. But I, I think that, you know, I don't know there's, there's so many restrictions, government restrictions now, and just, you know, the festivals get shut down these days, and the rave culture came in the end of the 80s, and then there was, you know, all these raves going all over the country, you know, in the middle of the countryside, you know, in a field somewhere, you'd have a marquee, big marquee set up with a PA system, and the police were always late after, you know, it had already happened, and right. you know they were one step ahead. But then they brought in these laws, and they shut them all down. They all became corporatized. Why was there all of a sudden just a negative energy towards these events? Well, you know, it was people just saying, you know, we're going to do what we want, and, we're, and you know, it was, they were rebelling against the system. It's the same old thing. In the '60s, it was rock and roll. You know, in the '80s, in the late '80s and early '90s, it was you know like rave culture. You know, house music and drum and bass and all this kind of Balearic and all, all this kind of really uh, an alternative lifestyle to what was being offered, right. you know, in the mainstream of the country's sort of government. It, you know, it was just, it was people expressing themselves and it was art, you know, it was in another form, you know, 
uh, in the 90s. But, but, you know, they brought the laws in in the early 90s and then and then um, the police would just turn up and start, you know, smashing up the DJ's turntables and stuff Jeez. like that. Or, you know, just kind of <laughs> arresting people and shutting down the parties. And, and I think that it just kind of silenced a whole movement that was really starting to pick up momentum. And, and then it got to a point in the, where it just all became corporatized. Like I said, you know, the festivals now are all, you know, like five quid for a bottle of water or, you know, it's like uh, ridiculous amounts of money to get into a festival. And, you know, it's this heavy security and it's, it, the vibe is gone. It's not like um, freedom of expression so much as it's, you know, sort of capitalizing on emptying the punter's wallet. It's become a different thing to what I remember growing up. Yeah. So you could still go to the whiskey. You could still go to the Roxy. You could still go to the Greek theater. You could still go to places in LA and see bands. Nice that rock and roll has kind of stayed and carried on in Los Angeles. Yeah, it is. It's a great thing that yeah, LA still has sort of kept its thing going, but it's really shrunk. You know, a, a small, contained little sort of world now. Um, compared to what it was, yeah. you know, because I'm, I'm talking about, you know, um, like, you know, some of the free festivals were some of the best. You would go and you'd have your life changed. You'd have experiences that would change your whole life, trajectory of your life. You know, these were the things that I grew up with. And going out to a club is brilliant as well, but it's a different animal. It's not the same thing as going to a big festival and, um, and sharing with, you know, a bunch of people you've never met before and really actually getting involved you know there was there was something it was more like a movement of people who who decided enough was enough with the way society was and they wanted to make where people could group together and make real change in the world and make positive change and i think that a lot of that's really been shut down england is very controlled now i mean there's, just, there's cameras on every block you know in london at least well most of the cities you know it's like you you can't walk around without being filmed by some closed circuit tv camera in the 80s it was becoming a thing you know speed cameras you know placed in strategic positions coming off a, a motorway you know, you're doing 70 miles an hour and, you know, suddenly there's a hidden camera that, you, of course, you don't see because you're, you're slowing down from coming off the motorway. Right. The freeways, they call it in America. And, you know, and they'll strategically place it so that, you know, you're coming down a hill so the car wants to roll and, you know, and then you're over the speed limit and the flash gun goes off and then you got a, a ticket in the mail. I mean, it's extortion. It's not like that in America. It's just, I don't think Americans really understand just how... The system in England is really kind of, you know, everyone's driving around like mice. They're terrified to set up a speed camera. You know, it's like, uh, you know, everything's so expensive. It's just really kind of capitalism gone mad. You know, London has a reputation of being one of the greatest cities in the world, and I don't doubt that. But, you know, when you grow up in a place and you're there long enough to see all of these things going on and see how the whole place is operating you know and every time you walk out the door it's like they're emptying your wallet <laughs> but you know i don't know if there's a great terry gilliam movie called brazil with robert de niro and michael palin yeah there's the with the crux of it i mean that's kind of you know because i mean it's it's like a dystopian future yeah. you know and very much like in the in the idea of like george orwell's 1984 so many regulations and so many codes 
and all of these things. The more the world becomes like that and the more people get used to it, they won't know the difference and that's what they want. You know, if people don't know the difference between being truly free in their mind and their lives and or being sort of shepherded around like that, it's like, they don't want people capable of critical thinking. It's a funny movie. It's very ironic, that movie, but it's, you know, and it, it, we watch it now and it seems a little dated because it's based I think in the future, but you know, they were trying to guess what would have happened in the future. Of course, they didn't right. realize we were all going to be walking around cell phones, you know. But um, but it's a brilliant movie. It was like the one of the first dystopic films that depicted how pathetic we will become as a slave society. Absolutely, it says it, you know, in a nutshell. And you see that happening. I mean, it's exaggerated, obviously, in the film, but that just makes it all the more apparent of what it's trying to, the message it's trying to convey, you know, but the but the way that England was be, has become, you know, is just something that I don't want to be a part of, really. It's, I have no interest in it. And uh, I think, like my dad said to me in the early 90s, and that was the early 90s before it had gone even more, you know, right. but it was, he said, oh, you know, uh, you know, England as it has been, you know. That's what he said. You know, like in the 60s and the 70s is referring to, you know, right. like um, maybe even the 80s. I mean, it was still fun in the 80s when I was a teenager. You know, it was, I mean, there was, there was a lot of fun you could have. You know, I mean, I, I did have a lot of fun, you know, but it, and the whole scene was still kind of vibey, you know. But right. I don't know, it just got more and more kind of, I don't know, it's just, you know, it's, it, it's, it's overcrowded and there's just so many people that are trying hard to make a living and, it, and it, everything's so expensive. And I, I just feel bad for a lot of the young people there that sort of, that when I was their age, you know, I um, I remember, you know, the struggles, but, but now it's just everyone's got their face in their cell phone. They're just hiding from reality in that way now. I, I, I don't know if everyone, no, I'm not saying everyone's, you know, running away from something that they don't want to be a part of, but... But that the technology distracts people. No question. I have two children, man. I'm fully aware of the whole distraction mechanism. I had to throw my son's <laughs> iPhone out the window on the freeway. Yeah, I, I can understand, you know, that feeling. I mean, it's it, it's gotten to a point where it's that people are being so controlled. I mean, you know, if they want to find someone, you know, they're carrying a you know a GPS location device on you at all times. I mean, it's, yeah. as long as it's switched on, and it's always switched on, so everyone's. You know, they have the capability of tracking anyone at any given time, wherever you go. And it's like a police state thing. And, and you know, I have nothing against the police, you know, because I used to think of the police when I was a kid as, you know, helping old ladies across the road. Right. That was just a romantic notion I had, I think, because people said, oh, you know, that, that's what the police used to be like, you know, maybe in 100 years ago. Right. <laughs> They don't help old ladies across the road anymore, man, you know. No, they arrest old ladies for jaywalking now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, even what you said about the whole technology, too. What about the whole idea of relationships where you're holding your phone and you're looking at Tinder and you're swiping, you're swiping a screen to see in an instant if this is somebody you want to connect with? Yeah, well, it's absurd, really, if you think about it. It really is banal. You know, you're actually... Swiping, going to find people that you can connect with, but you're not really connecting with them. I mean, you're connecting digitally with them through one device to another, but it's, I mean, the phones are connecting to each other. You, you're not, I mean, you know, you, yeah, you can message them, you can talk to people, you can have instant conversations, and that part of it is cool, you know, where you can reach someone in, in an instant. But what is it if it's not just, you know, because you need to say something to a friend, you know, or just remind them of a... Well, I have found there's a lot of, 
an electronic uh, irresponsibility going on, of course. People are getting divorces through texting. People are doing a lot of odd behavior and hiding behind the technology and being emotionally irresponsible human beings. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, and, then, and then you've got people who are just spending hours playing Candy Crush Saga and all these pointless games and stuff that, uh, you know, it's like, um, you know, it all started with video games, late 80s. Everyone wanted a Sony PlayStation and, you know, when it came out and, and I saw the writing on the wall then. I just remember going around the friend's house. Nobody's sitting around the room smoking, getting high. But nobody's talking to each other. They've right. all got their face in the TV screen, you know, playing Demolition Derby or something, you know. And it, it, it's just become a thing where, you know, everyone's just like sort of, sort of spending hours and hours not actually doing anything creative, really. They're just... But it's fun, you know. It's just the fun factor, and and you know, playing games is sort of, you know. I mean, I mean, so it's all social media. I mean, I, I do have a, a couple of Facebook accounts, but I don't go posting on them every minute. The sort of things that I want to spend time with in the day. And there's there's only so many hours in a day. And it's so easy to get sucked into that thing. It's like when you grew up in a world like I grew up in in the seventies and the eighties. Um, you know that. What was outside the door was a mystery. You know, right. you had to go outside and find things. You know, you, it made you do things. It made you get out and it made you motivate yourself. You'd go and visit a friend, you know, you'd, and, and yeah, you'd call them on the phone or, you know, you'd, you didn't have a cell phone. You know, sometimes you'd go to a place and you'd miss them and they'd gone out and, you know, it, it was activity based. And nowadays, it's a big, there's no mystery beyond the doorstep anymore, you know, your own front doorstep. There's no mystery anymore because you can just go online, just, you know, be in touch with the whole world, you know. And it's just made the world so much smaller and so much more sort of uninteresting in that way, you yeah. know, that it's just like, uh, I want to get out of the big wide world, you know, because the world ain't the big wide world anymore. It's just all been, you know, digitized almost. And, and so, you know, you can go on Google Earth and you can look at any place on the planet and figure out where you don't want to go, <laughs> you know, without even taking a plane there to find out for yourself if you didn't want to go, you know? It's just everything is laid out on a screen for us now and literally down to a two-dimensional screen. I traveled to Africa when I was 19 and got married in Nairobi. And, you know, I, I went on safari. I saw a giraffe running at 40 miles an hour, it was an incredible thing to see in this beautiful bush environment with uh, Mount Kilimanjaro in the background, you know, I mean, there's things that you that you see with your own eyes and feel the wind in your face, in the Jeep, you know, uh, the red, I mean, there are things about going out and exploring like that, that are just life changes, you know, they change trajectory of your your life your whole thoughts on the world it opens you up into technicolor from black and white these are those experiences that you can't stick a, a, a you know a cell phone and record a video and then send it to you know it's like people do that when they go places but, but people you know, do that when they go see like, their kids on stage performing they got a phone or an ipad in front of their face they're not even looking directly at their own children they're show. looking through a device no, at a show and they're probably never gonna watch that footage again you know and neither is so anybody else nobody gives a shit most people i think that are being born into this 
you know, the, they call them millennials, I guess, people who are growing up with this technology, take them back in a time machine to 1972, and what would they do? I took my son to see Snoop Dogg in Ashland, where I am. Snoop Dogg came to this town and did a show. Yeah. And me, at 50-plus years old, with who would never in a million years get that kind of an opportunity to see really somebody so profoundly influential in the music world, in popular culture, and he got to be three feet away from this guy. And you know what? Nobody in there had their phones out. Everybody was at the show. Snoop was undeniable. You could not watch him through a cell phone or an iPad. It had nothing to do with the electronic world at all, other than the fact that the backing tracks were all digital and he didn't have a live band. But it was still him up there on the mic with all his bling, being Snoop, and it was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. Yeah, uh, that's because... I guess his fans uh, are, are smart, you know. You know, I remember my friend telling me that she went to watch J.J. Kale, and this was before cell phones, obviously. But she, you know, she walked in there, it was this Hammersmith Odeon, which became the Bats Apollo in Hammersmith in London, and, and the whole place was filled with smoke, you know, weed, hash. And it was like one giant family, you know, and J.J. was sitting on a stool with his guitar and, and he was doing After Midnight and all these cool songs that he, you know, that, I mean, I love J.J. Kale. And so there's something that we're losing when it comes to that kind of experience. A big family together, that aspect of it is definitely being lost, where people can't even connect in that way um, without the technology being in their pocket, in their hand, you know, usually in their hand all the time. It's a technology addiction. It's, it's almost become a substitute for, you know, hard drugs in some cases, you know, where people are actually now addicted to the technology. And it's just another form of addiction, like anything. I was in a restaurant in town here, four older people at the table, and I mean older. They had to be in their late 80s or even 90s. All four of these old people were staring at their phones. Maybe they were texting each other because they couldn't be bothered to talk. Definitely uh, taking over, uh, taking over America, and it, you know I think that's a very unfortunate event that's that's been going on for a long time. But now it just seems to have gone into turbo overdrive. You know, getting people addicted and slowly killing them, making you know fresh food available to everyone, you know, in, in terms of educating people that, you know, organic, healthy food is is how to fix your sickness and, you know, and, and doing the right things with your body. I think it's important that young people go somewhere that they, they haven't been before, you know, somewhere com completely disconnected from their own culture and really get an idea of what's going on in the world outside because the perception that people have of the world around them is, unless you've seen some other place that you've never been before, it, it, it's, it's very limited. You don't have that contrast um, other eye out into the world, you know, that, that other vision of, the, of, of what's around you. It's very easy for, to fall into a lifelong pattern of just not going anywhere and being controlled, you know, in that kind of, very sort of insipid kind of way where it's 
very subversive, you know, but like not barely, you don't notice it's even happening to you if, if you haven't been outside of it. I think, you know, that's why it's important to travel somewhere and, and really sort of, you know, get off a plane and go into the jungle or go into a big forest somewhere or go into a, a beautiful place, you know, or meet some people that are in a hill tribe somewhere, you know, or just, just you know, really get yourself out into into some kind of place like that. And I think that is one of the most powerful things a person can do, you know. I totally agree. It took me 56 years to go to Thailand. I know for a fact that it is essential for us to see each other and how differently we live so we can even have some normal compassion for each other. And and here's another thing too. I've been to Thailand twice in the past two years. I don't see very many Americans. And I think part of the problem is we're the furthest from everything. And people in Europe tend to travel more because it's just frankly easier and not as far to get there. So I'm finding... Yeah, yeah. I mean, America's isolated in between the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean. 50% of all Americans don't even have a passport because the country's so big, they just travel to a different state. And to them, that's like going to another country, but it's not. I just read Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck about Steinbeck traveling with his dog all over uh, America. And the one thing that he said in the book was... Americans are all Americans. No matter where you came from, America is America, and it's not like any other place. If that's the only place you ever experience, then it may seem diverse to someone who's never been out of it. But when you get out, you realize how non-diverse it is. You know, it's, it's kind of a monoculture in a lot of ways. There are different places in America that are very different physically, you know, like Florida is very, very different to Montana or, you know, uh, California is definitely very different to Vermont. There are some beautiful places in America and it really is a stunning country, but, you know, there's also a lot of uh, things about America that are not so attractive. And, and it, there's always good and bad things anywhere you go. And, you know, America is such, such a big country. It's almost like holding the whole thing together is like, is the glue going to carry on sticking, you know, because it's just such a big place and it, you know, and there, and there seems to be such a polarization between, you know, the whole duality thing, you know, left, right, you know, red flag waving, blue flag waving, you know, and then, and, and all the stuff that's going on right now, which has not been attractive at all. I mean, it, I think America is just like a young country, you know, it's, it's, it's a young place. There's a lot of maturing to do on a lot of levels. And, you know, in terms of recognizing that there is, for many people there, I think they don't recognize that, that there is a world around them beyond the borders of America. And America isn't the only place that matters. And I remember reading a statistic, which was shocking to me. You know, now I'm used to it. But back then it was shocking. And it was like the American population accounts for 4% of the entire human population of the world. Yet they consume... 40% of the entire world's resources, which is insane. Well, that's total social irresponsibility, yeah. of course. The rest of the world was acting like that. There'd be nothing left in five years. <laughs> well, there'd be no world yeah. left. No, there'd be nothing. There'd be no people because we'd have to perish. There'd be no way for us to sustain ourselves. We'd just use everything up, and then we'd, we'd, just, we'd become yeah. extinct. There's a way, of, um, a, a way of life which is, you know, being more resourceful with resources and... and having more responsibility when it comes to maxing out what you have and not um, just consumption like on such a 
an incredibly insane level that um, that if that becomes normal, then you know who would know the difference. So well, that's the, that's the that's problem. The, well, the problem is it's hypocrisy, meaning you cannot instruct your children to learn how to share and not to hit when the whole world is not sharing and hitting each other. So it's very difficult to have mixed messages as a human being raised in the world, let alone just in America, when you're you're told that you should live at this certain level of competency and reasonability when the world around you does not mirror those lessons. So it's very troubling for a child to grow up in a world where you're instructed to be a certain way, but those around you do not act that way. Yeah, and, and then, you know, it's also the thing of uh, the, the pressure of maintaining a lifestyle of a certain level where, you know, people have to go to work and they have to work their asses off and they get stressed out. You know, the big cities, the metropolises, you know. I mean, I see it in Los Angeles. I've seen it there. I mean, yeah. I, I know that it happens in New York. It happens in all these big cities, you know, and around the world, too. Yeah. I mean, it's happened in Tokyo. It happens in London now. I mean, everywhere is affected, you know, but there's this incredible pressure on, on young people now, you know, who are just out of college or, or whatever. They're trying to make a career out of their life. And, you know, they're just buried in debt. Like the moment they get out of college from the college and then they're, they're buried in debt with paying rent. They're buried in debt from, you know, uh, or the expense of living is, is just seems to be higher. There's less space, you know, there's less, you know, houses are, are far more expensive to rent. Everyone ends up in the, you know, in Manhattan. You end up in a shoebox that you're paying, you know, two and a half thousand dollars a month for. I mean, I don't know how a lot of these people are, um, are cutting it because it's just so on a knife's edge right now that I feel personally, I feel that how long can this sustain? Pulled up an article about a kid in, uh, I think it was in uh, Newport Beach, California. He just killed himself, a high school student, because of the pressures of homework and just everything exploding around him. And he wrote three beautiful letters, goodbye letters to his family, to his friends, and to the school about what needs to happen. You can see that we are building to a crescendo of a huge catastrophe, which may just have to happen like a volcano. I mean, here in, in uh, Southern Oregon, we have Crater Lake, which is one of the most beautiful natural places on the planet. But it came- I know, I love that. Right? Yeah. But it came out of a massive, explosive, violent action that had to occur. And then beauty came out of this natural explosive occurrence. And I think humanity is gonna mirror kind of what's happening on the earth uh, uh, environmentally through, uh, you know, climate and everything else, we are maybe going to have to implode. Like the drug addict that hits yeah, rock bottom. Right yeah, and perfect analogy. So it I'm, really is. And I, I, I kind of look forward to the disasters, as terrible as that may sound. I really feel that something has to give. We need to be humbled, really, is what needs to happen. We need to be humbled. And I yeah. think nature will humble us at some point unless we do it to ourselves, that we just sort of self-destruct in a way where enough of us have to disappear that the rest of us that are left behind become more appreciative and, uh, and, and, and have a mutual appreciation for each other. And, and again, I think this is something that's going to happen. I think it's kind of unavoidable. The writing is on the wall. And we're not doing much about it. 
I think we're going to be left with minimal choices, and then maybe the, the world will somehow heal itself. And I don't know if that's a fantasy, but it feels like it's coming. And I, maybe it won't be in your or my lifetime, but I have children here, and they're going to constantly feel the effects of what it is we're doing. I'm kind of excited that something's going to give at some point and we're going to get another chance to try this again, maybe. Yeah, well, I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And there is going to be a a very grim period that we'll have to travel through to get to the other side of it. And hopefully the other side of it will be, you know, more enlightenment and just more collaborative uh, human species, you know, where, where we get back to what matters, you know, and and not based on the products of our society, but based on the products of ourselves. The social thing being connected to each other in real ways, kind of losing our way. And I think this is what we're seeing is definitely a product of of that, you know, of the technology especially and of the sort of just taking everything for granted, you know. I mean, fresh water comes out of the tap and it's just taken for granted you know and then you, you but, but like i said when you go to a place you know like in africa where you see a village and they have to walk 10 miles to get fresh water but they're happy right. and you think well you know well that's because they have you, what they need which is each other it's, it's interesting because i i spoke to this african guy in this village in malindi in kenya i remember you know we all sat down in a big circle about 10 of us I was like the only white person in the circle. And, you know, there's all of Kenyans, you know, in a circle around this, that uh, they make the staple food, which is kind of like a starchy rice. They're all putting their hands into it and eating it, you know, with their hands. Yeah. And, and I said, oh, you know, in the West where I come from, I said, you know, uh, we use uh, these metal objects called knives and forks. And he looked at me and he said, uh, it's very strange because he, trans- he was translating from Swahili, you know, um, yeah. my ex-wife was translating what he said. And he basically said, you're afraid to touch the food with your hands, yet you're putting it inside your body. Right. <laughs> it's totally ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And it really got me thinking, you know, and it was like, well, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, people in the West would say, oh, but diseases and, you know, um, you know, you catch something and, you know, so, well, you know, maybe your immune system is really down because you've sheltered it from all of these things that would otherwise strengthen it, you know? Well, we're overwashing our food. We don't even get the dirt on our food anymore that gives us some of the nutrients that we require. I just had this conversation on the show last week yeah. that, that we've over exactly. we're over sterilizing everything. <laughs> so we're we're actually we're gonna make ourselves sick because we're not used to even being exposed to anything anymore. It's just a pasteurized, sterilized, homogenized, you know, kind of a world. You yeah. Know? And uh, everything's wrapped in plastic and the, the oceans are full of plastic now. That, I think the ratio is uh, something ridiculous like um, it's it's like half Plastic has plankton now, and I think all of the, uh, the a lot of the fish and the birds and the, the sea life is in the oceans are dying off because of this. Fifty percent of all the plastic that's ever gone out to the world has been created in the last ten years or something crazy yeah. like that. We're creating some some real monsters without cages, and um, I know we've really got to stop this 
behavior, otherwise we're, we're really going to wipe ourselves out. And you know, the planet will just shake us off like a virus. And it'll take about 100,000 years for the planet to fix itself, but the planet will be fine. We'll just kill ourselves along with a bunch of other species that we fortunately take down with us. You know, and, and if that's what has to happen, you know, then Mother Nature will, will see to it. That's the ultimate say right there. Mother Nature has the ultimate say. Let's see what happens. I mean, if we don't work within the boundaries, I think, of, of what our world can deal with, and if we just oversaturate our world with, with all this stuff, you know, that's not biodegradable and everything else, it's, it, it's, we're going to have our future carved out for us by Mother Nature, you know? You know, we don't have any natural predators except maybe mosquitoes. We are beating the shit out of ourselves. We literally can change the weather. We, other than the outline that we're given by whatever source that is, we control this experience. It is all up to us. That is what boggles my well, mind. Ionizing the upper atmosphere, you know, is, is that, I mean, those are the games that have been played now. And to affect the weather in some other part of the world, you can't mess with the human genome, you know, with all these nuclear power stations in the world. You know, the human genome has been contaminated. The, the animal genome, everything has been contaminated since the 40s, since they started letting off nuclear bombs, you know, with all the testing, Bikini Atoll started with that, and, you know, in our, you know, Nevada was one of the places that was just got bombed the crap out of when they were doing all these tests in the 50s and 60s. And you got all of this, you know, it doesn't just evaporate into right. thin air. I mean, right. it, Every, if you put something into the world, it stays there. You know, it, it doesn't go away. So we're doing things to our world that um, we didn't even understand what the consequences or the ramifications were going to be when when we were doing them. You know, in in like like I said, with the nuclear testing that went on in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it was just complete insanity. You know, to do that, and 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 so the human genome has been altered by all of this activity that we got up to. And, you know, you can't reverse that. You can't turn the clock back and right. undo that. It's right. something that we've unleashed, and that's it. It's it's with us, you know? Well, you said something earlier that I think is everything, which is, one, we do not teach our children how to think critically. And it is fundamentally the most important thing we can do for each other is to teach each other how to examine, contemplate, yeah. and come up with some conclusions of, uh, how our actions affect each other and the entire experience that we're having. And until we teach our children how to think and not what to think, we're just killing ourselves. People may say, oh, that's a, you know, it sounds so doomsday, but, but it's true. It's actually true. And just because it's a, a subject that is, a lot of people would say, oh, you know, that's such a downer to think like that. But, you know, but actually it's, re it's actually true. And, um, you know, the truth is not always pretty, and I think that, that everyone should just try to at least consider what's going on as maybe being a bit of a problem, and what is their role in that, and what can they do, you know, a small thing they can do in their life to make some kind of change, you know, and I think people have been brainwashed. Paul, this is why I love everybody, because many people just don't know. It's not even ignoring because the word ignorance has nothing to do with ignore. To be ig ignorance is to not know, to not be educated. So if you don't know... Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's 
just if you don't know, then you then you don't know any better. That, that's exactly right. And if you don't know any better, it's the failure of in, the entire species that you don't know any better because we didn't take care of you. Because we didn't do what we were supposed to do was make sure that you know what you need to know so you can be the best version of you that you could be. And we don't do that for each other because we don't fucking care about each other. And until we care about each other, we will continue down this path of self-destruction because it's natural to do that under the circumstances. I see the the good in every person I interact with and who I meet, you know. And, you know, this is a profoundly deep conversation that we're having. And, but, you know, a lot of people, you, know, you can't have this conversation with them because they haven't got five minutes for it, you know, five seconds for it. It's like um, some people just uh, are operating on a very surface level and, you know, they, they don't know how to uh, handle, you know, information like which comes from critical thinking. And I just think it's about that. It's about people sharing really taking maybe a little more seriously and really working together to figure out how things can be changed for the better. But, you know, it's like if we carry on the way we are, our days are numbered, like I've said before. It's like, you know, we'll just be shaken off like the dinosaurs were, you know. It would be like, okay, that species has, you know, had its day. (laughs) I think I can assure you that that is happening. And just because we don't see a lot of it, it's absolutely happening. There is balance in the world of some sort. I wholly uh, agree with, with with that notion. You know, I mean, it's 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 so clear to me as well. You know, it's obviously very clear to you. We got to give people a chance because you know I, I volunteered at a middle school for three years. And no one was talking to these children philosophically. But I noticed when I would engage with them and talk with them in this way, their eyes would light up and they would get so excited because they could feel like they're really part of something real. And I think any human being that if you get them under the right circumstances and you speak with them and you engage them and you appreciate them and you allow them to be involved in the conversation, everybody really wants to be. We just have to figure out where is that place where there's no judgment, there's total appreciation, not just acceptance, appreciation, love, like you really care about people. If you talk to them with that in your heart, no matter how fucked up you think they are, I think we can get to people. And there used to be the convincers. Yeah, I agree. There used to be the Jesus and the Martin Luther King and the Gandhis. We've had these convincers that could speak from a totally non-judgmental, loving place and convince. This is about convincing people, by the way, to convince others that it is more reasonable to work through a uh, an ideal of of love versus fear. We just haven't given each other the time, honestly, to generate those kind of results yet. But I do see that as a possibility because I know from my own personal experience that people can have their minds changed under the right conditions. And we just haven't created the condition yet for that to happen, that's all. And that's that's gonna be an educational thing. I know it's late for you, and uh, you were curious to how long this call was going to go. And we've gone over two hours. And it's been a great call. I just want to tell you, Paul, I really appreciate uh, that you were willing to spend the time and stay up a little later uh, to be on the show. And I, I think we talked about a lot more than we anticipated, frankly. 
I appreciate you, man, and, and all the experience that you've had and everything that you've had to share with my listening audience. Well, thank you so much, too. I, I've, I've had a, um, a really great time chatting with you, and I uh, think, you know, we share a lot of views for sure. Well, you know what? We are the chance. As long as you and I can have this conversation, it increases my hope. I don't consider myself an optimist because I'm not optimistic about anything, and I'm not pessimistic about anything, but I think I'm the ultimate hopefulist because I know enough to know how much better that we could do collectively. It's just a matter of starting to do the right things. And again, because I have two children, they are my hope because they know things that I know a lot of other people don't know, and that will inform them, I'm hoping, to make much better decisions that include the rest of us brothers and sisters in the whole thing. Thank you so much, Mark. You're welcome, Paul. Thank you, brother. Sleep well, and uh, we'll catch up again in the future. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure. Take care, Paul. You too. Okay, brother. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. that's the show hope you enjoyed it Uh, it was great to do another call overseas to the UK to Paul I really appreciate his willingness to be very candid open and authentic so uh, thanks Paul rich super fun you're a funny dude glad to have you part of the uh, the whole thing helping me produce this show and thank you mom for being a good sport when we were calling you being silly I also want to say a very excited uh, congratulations to my daughter Zoe, who today passed her driving test after uh, spending three hours yesterday with me driving, which was super fun. We went up deceased Native American Memorial Highway and uh, drove all the way up into the mountains with beautiful snow-covered nature everywhere, and we stopped at Howard Prairie Lake area to uh, have a little bite to eat and then uh, drove all the way through and down Highway 66 back to Ashland. That was a really wonderful time to spend with my daughter and she took me to the store so I can get some new insoles for my shoes. It's the perfect day, really. I also want to say get well to Sammy, my son Sam. Uh, We took him into the ER a few days ago. He was uh, having uh, symptoms, uh, appendix-like symptoms Uh, like his sister uh, just a year ago. Uh, But it turns out it's a condition that mimics uh, appendicitis and uh, just requires a little bed rest, a lot of fluids, and uh, missing a couple of days of school, which, yeah, that can't hurt. So uh, feel better, Sammy. Love you. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. Love doing the show. It's pretty amazing to have access to such incredible people who are willing to come on the show and uh, I'd just like to keep that going okay always a pleasure to be here with you and bring you whatever it is that I bring you word to your mother's uncle this show is sponsored by Paris Green Paris is always a good idea 77 Oak Street Ashland Oregon visit them online at Facebook If whatever you're doing is not working, 
There's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44. Okay, buddy, good.